0: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice and suicide that may be unsettling. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. We've all felt the sting of rejection, whether by a love interest or a professional opportunity. The pain of denial often triggers feelings of resentment and disappointment. Fortunately, these emotions fade over time. For most people. There are a small few who never quite heal. And the only balm for these long-haul sufferers is a bitter act of retaliation. But for Dr. Anthony Garcia, one strike of vengeance wasn't enough. Angered by countless obstacles to his professional advancement, the doctor obsessed over exacting revenge on the faculty of Creighton University. What he didn't realize was that while his crimes rewarded his brain, following through on his vindictive impulses would eventually lead to his own death sentence. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David
1: Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to assist Alistair to provide some medical insight into our final episode of the case of Dr. Anthony Garcia, whose career choice was a murderous mistake. You
0: can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Anthony Garcia, an American doctor who murdered the son and housekeeper of his former residency director in 2008. Today, we'll reveal how Anthony returned to killing, taking two more victims years after his first crime. We'll also discuss the investigation that intercepted his third act of vengeance and sealed his fate. All this and more coming up. Stay with us.
2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: In their investigation of the Dundee neighborhood murders, the Omaha Police Department quickly hit a dead end. A year after the 2008 killings, the case was declared cold. Unbeknownst to investigators, the murderer, 34-year-old Anthony Garcia, had set out with the intent to kill Dr. Bill Hunter, the residency director at Creighton University's medical school. But when he learned dr hunter wasn't home anthony changed course to inflict an emotional wound he slayed dr hunter's 11 year old son tom and 57 year old housekeeper shirley sherman with his revenge taken and no one on his trail anthony garcia pursued work in the medical field once again though he'd faced a series of uphill battles in his attempts to work as a doctor he was relentless. By March 2009, Anthony had moved to Illinois, where he'd previously secured a temporary medical license. This gave him access to contract jobs across the state where he primarily performed health screenings for patients at clinics. Unfortunately for Anthony, these gigs were relatively
1: low-paying and thankless. Temporary licenses are given to the new interns after completing their four-year medical school curriculum. After successfully completing this one-year internship, they receive their permanent license to practice medicine. During their year-long internship, these new doctors amass tools to learn procedures and protocols they'll need in their careers, like spinal taps, intubations, and how to interact with patients, families, and other healthcare workers. Because temp-licensed doctors don't have as much training as those who've matriculated into their residencies, they're naturally held in less professional esteem. They also have longer shifts and, on the whole, have to deal with more hospital grunt work. One conceivable benefit for someone that's licensed during this training period is their protection from liability for alleged malpractice. The individual training programs assume their legal responsibility for any perceived wrongdoing, so the educating doctor doesn't become vulnerable to expensive and punitive lawsuits. Under the right circumstances, I suppose a student doctor could try to take advantage of this in some nefarious way. But, as usual, Anthony Garcia wasn't
0: willing to put in the effort to get the career he supposedly wanted. When the temporary jobs in Illinois proved dissatisfying, Anthony decided to try his luck in Indiana. By 2010, Anthony had obtained another temporary license. Soon, he began working at a federal prison in Terre Haute, providing healthcare to inmates. Apparently more lucrative than his roles in Illinois, the job enabled Anthony to buy his first home. He followed up that investment by purchasing a black Mercedes SUV and a Ferrari. Along with his evident efforts to better his external circumstances, Anthony also pursued treatment for alcoholism. He even prescribed himself antidepressants and antipsychotics to improve his mental health. But Anthony never quite gave up his dependency. After work, at a local gentleman's club, he'd knock back beers and fraternize with female dancers who affectionately called him Dr. Tony. At the club, Anthony was admired and praised, something he never got in his professional life. Bolstered by liquid courage and the compliments of paid dancers, Anthony bragged about his double murder. The dancer he hoped to impress, Cecilia Hoffman, laughed awkwardly. She assumed Anthony invented the heinous story for attention. But the comment did stick with her, and alcohol stuck with Anthony. Throughout 2011 and early 2012, Anthony often showed up to work intoxicated. He got aggressive with colleagues and supervisors, and even sent his boss a threatening voicemail. After countless incidents, he was forced to resign in the summer of 2012. Consistent with his pattern, Anthony Garcia didn't wait before applying to other jobs. In fact, it seems he made the jump in logic that his failures with hospitals would cease once he secured a permanent medical license so he sent an application to Indiana's licensing board. It didn't take them long to dig up details from Anthony's concerning past. In September 2012, someone on the board contacted Creighton University's chair of pathology, Dr. Roger Brumbach. He'd helped in Anthony's firing, So when they tried to confirm Anthony's experience, Brumbach offered an honest reflection on Anthony's untimely exit from the school. Three months later, in December 2012, the board denied 39-year-old Anthony's request for a permanent license. Though they never revealed the name of the Creighton faculty member who provided the records, they likely mentioned that his offenses at the Nebraska school were grounds for his rejection. In immediate rage, Anthony blamed Dr. Chandra Butra, the doctor he'd had the most trouble with while a resident from 2000 to 2001. In his mind, Dr. Butra's eviscerating review marked the beginning of all of his obstacles. To console himself, Anthony sought refuge in alcohol and returned to his irresponsible habits, showing up to work under the influence and often growing belligerent. On January 2nd, 2013, he was fired from another medical job in Indiana. Demoralized by repeated failures, Anthony fell into his most vicious drinking binge yet. On January 5th, days after his firing, he was admitted to the hospital three different times for blood alcohol content well over the legal limit. This began a month-long spree of emergency room visits, 911 calls, and interactions with police for public intoxication. Anthony's self-prescribed antidepressants and antipsychotics only exacerbated the alcohol's effects.
1: When combined with prescription medications, like antipsychotics and antidepressants, alcohol has a potentially toxic effect on the body and mind. Antipsychotics and antidepressants have depressant effects that slow the central nervous system, creating a calming impact. Because alcohol is itself a depressant and can interfere with how these psychotropic drugs work, there can be a synergistic effect from this combination that can cause extreme sedation, drowsiness, and a lack of coordination. If someone were to experience this in the wrong setting, they could physically hurt themselves or the people around them. Even though alcohol can temporarily elevate one's mood, it'll definitely interact with these kinds of medications and could ultimately heighten someone's depressive and psychotic symptoms. It's safe to say that mixing of these substances is risky and definitely has the potential to drastically alter someone's judgment.
0: Consumed by dark thoughts turned obsessive by alcohol and prescriptions, Anthony continued to stew in his rage at Dr. Butra until he decided it was time to act. On January 10, 2013, Anthony conducted an internet search for Home Residence Butra, Omaha, Nebraska. Just five years earlier, he'd begun his revenge the same way by carefully seeking out Dr. Hunter's address. Now, his second murder plot was taking form. But he was less careful this time around. On March 8, 2013, Anthony entered a store in Terre Haute and left with a semi-automatic pistol. In doing so, he'd left a clear trail for investigators. This was a stark difference from his reliance on cash and kitchen knives during the Dundee murders. The gun purchase seemed to represent the growth of Anthony's anger. Perhaps in the case of Dr. Butra, he yearned to hear the sound of gunfire. He did have the presence of mind to wait a while, though. A full two months later, in May 2013, Anthony got into his black Mercedes SUV and headed to Omaha. His objective was simple punish Dr. Butra for standing in the way of his success. Fortunately, when Anthony pulled up to Dr. Butra's residence on May 12, 2013, Dr. Butra and her husband were out on a lunch date. When they returned, however, they saw signs of an attempted break-in. Across town, Anthony Garcia sat in his car in the Wingstop parking lot, frustrated that his plan had been derailed. After ordering from the fast food chain, he searched the address of another Creighton University professional, Dr. Roger Brumbach. Anthony was pleased to discover that the man's house was just a few miles from the restaurant. Around 3 p.m., 65-year-old Dr. Brumbach painted the walls of his foyer as part of a big home renovation. He and his wife had planned to sell their house and move to West Virginia. A sea of boxes now spanned their abode. But Dr. Brumbach's quiet productivity was soon interrupted when he heard a visitor at the door. He opened it to find Anthony Garcia holding up his gun ready to shoot. Dr. Brumbach managed to grab the weapon before Anthony could move the trigger. But Anthony fought back, regaining his grip on the gun in Dr. Brumbach's hands. In the two-man struggle, Anthony took the upper hand, letting off three shots before the magazine fell out. One of the bullets entered Dr. Brumbach's leg. Another entered his shoulder The third was fatal, penetrating
1: the abdomen, hitting
0: a blood vessel and his liver.
1: Though Dr. Brumbach was shot in three places, the most lethal was likely the shot to the abdomen. This is because we know the bullet hit a vital abdominal blood vessel and his liver, possibly puncturing or tearing through his hepatic veins, hepatic arteries, or portal vein. This would have caused severe bleeding that could have ended Dr. Brumbach's life very quickly, and this is because of the strong blood flow pressures in our arterial vessels. Gunshots to the leg and shoulder are statistically less deadly because there are no vulnerable organs in these areas, and the blood vessels running through them are generally smaller and surrounded by muscle. However, if Brumbach was shot in the leg, hitting his femoral artery, he could have bled out very quickly. This also holds true for the destruction of major blood vessels in the shoulder, like the thoracoacromial artery. However, odds say the abdominal hit was the cause of death.
0: Dr. Brumbach's wife, Mary, heard the shots. She came running toward the door to find her husband bleeding out. To her horror, Anthony ran at her. Anthony hit Mary across the head with the unloaded gun, knocking her to the floor. Anthony fled to the kitchen and returned with two knives. Mary held up her arms to defend herself, but Anthony eventually stabbed her neck. It was the same tactic he'd used five years ago. Like Tom Hunter and Shirley Sherman, Mary Brumbach died of a severed carotid artery. Though Dr. Brumbach was likely already dead from blood loss, Anthony wanted to leave his signature on both victims. He stabbed Dr. Brumbach in the neck six times, again severing the carotid artery. Just minutes after he'd begun his attack, Anthony Garcia got back into his SUV and disappeared onto Interstate 80. He'd once again taken his revenge and was eager to dodge an investigation. He didn't know that his days of lawless freedom were numbered. Coming up, investigators make a break in the Brumbach murder case.
2: Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series, Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and the house party gone horribly wrong, To a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results. Go deeper inside four affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with party fouls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen free only on Spotify.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. After being denied a permanent license to practice medicine in Indiana, 39-year-old Anthony Garcia cast blame onto Dr. Chandra Butra, a Creighton University pathologist who'd criticized him during his residency. He tried to tamp down his anger by self-prescribing antipsychotics and antidepressants to no avail.
1: Although self-prescribing for physicians is legal at the federal level, most states have laws governing this for good reason. For example, doctors aren't able to prescribe controlled medications to themselves or family members. These drugs are potentially dangerous and chemically addictive, and include medications like stimulants, painkillers, sedatives, and benzodiazepines. Even when a doctor has the ability to self-prescribe, it's usually best to avoid doing so in order to get more objective treatment. However, sometimes it can be necessary in emergency situations, like if a doctor is suffering from an acute allergic reaction or needs immediate antibiotic treatment before they can access other care. On the other hand, for someone dealing with psychological issues like Anthony, it's crucial to recognize personal blind spots. It would have been wiser for him to seek help from a psychiatrist or psychologist rather than rely on his own bias and his limited background as a pathologist. Unfortunately, Alistair, the combination of his fragile mental health and his self-prescribing may have been a factor in the murders he committed.
0: Drowned in alcohol, medications and rage, Anthony set out for revenge on May 12, 2013. But when his plan to kill Dr. Butre fell through, Anthony drove to her colleague, Dr. Roger Brumbach's house, slaying the 65-year-old physician and his wife. Two days after the killings on May 14th, movers arrived at the Brumbach residence to take an old piano off the couple's hands. When there was no answer to their knocking, one of the men opened the front door and saw the magazine that had fallen out of Anthony's pistol lying on the ground. It was a clear sign that something was wrong, and the man quickly called 911. When local detectives Derek Moyce and Scott Warner arrived at the house, they noticed something peculiar. The knife wounds in both Mr. and Mrs. Brumbach's necks were reminiscent of the nearby Dundee murders from five years earlier. The lead was only further confirmed by their subsequent discovery that Dr. Brumbach had been a pathologist at Creighton University, just like Dr. Hunter. Certain they were dealing with the same culprit, the police realized their suspect was a serial killer on the hunt for doctors. Intrigued, detectives Moise and Warner sought out the only man who might be able to clarify what he had in common with Dr. Brumbach. At 5:30 p.m. on the 14th, detectives arrived at Dr. Hunter's house. The doctor was beside himself to learn of his colleague's fate. Ultimately, his answers didn't offer any significant clues. But a phone call the next day did. After learning of Dr. Brumbach's murder, Dr. Butra became suspicious of the attempted break-in at her home. Her husband contacted authorities who hurried to the Butra home to collect any DNA samples and dust for fingerprints. However, before they even had the results, Detectives Moise and Warner took the attempted break-in as confirmation that the killer had targeted Creighton physicians. Determined to pursue the link between the four deaths, the Omaha police chief created a task force. In the days that followed, Twenty-one investigators worked tirelessly, speaking to neighbors and friends of the Brumbacks, interviewing suspects, and subpoenaing Creighton University records. Weeks later, on May 27, 2013, Detective Moise learned of Anthony Garcia. The troublesome resident's resignation letter had been signed by Dr. Hunter and Dr. Brumback. And there were records detailing the conflict between Anthony Garcia and Dr. Butra. Anthony had a motive to kill all three of these pathologists. Other clues seemed suspicious as well. Though Anthony currently owned a lavish Mercedes and a Ferrari, records showed that from June 2007 to June 2009, he owned a silver Honda CRV, the same make model, and color that various people in the Dundee neighborhood saw on the day of the 2008 murders. Three days later, on May 30th, 2013, Moise pulled two detectives from the task force aside. He wanted them to help him dig deeper into Anthony together the offshoot team uncovered anthony's emails financial records and phone calls they soon found a heap of evidence including proof of the gun purchase he made on march 8, 2013. it certainly seemed anthony had the means to kill as they continued their research credit card records revealed his meal at the wing stop in omaha on mother's day just minutes after the alarm was triggered at the butress home and an hour before the Brumbacks were attacked. Anthony also received an unanswered call that day that pinged a cell phone tower near Omaha. More than motive and means, these findings showed that Anthony had proximity to the victims. An opportunity. The investigators eventually got prosecutors to order an arrest warrant in addition, the police were granted access to GPS tracking and kept an eye on Anthony's movements. Soon, they'd be able to get their primary suspect in custody. On July 14, 2013, the task force detectives flew to Indiana with plans to enter Anthony's home in the early morning with the help of the Indiana SWAT team. But by the time their plane landed, the GPS showed that Anthony was two hours away in Illinois and driving farther south. Frustrated, FBI agents drove an unmarked car toward Anthony's location and soon found his vehicle in Salem, Illinois, parked outside of a motel where he'd stopped for the night. The agents booked a hotel across the street where they could watch Anthony's car from their window. They also called a nearby FBI field office in Illinois requesting assistance. Their plan was to get a few hours of rest, then wake up at 5 a.m. to keep an eye on Anthony throughout the day, waiting for a safe time to issue an arrest. The team considered him armed and dangerous, so they needed to move with caution. But while the officers slept, Anthony left the motel and disappeared onto the interstate. By the time the agents woke up the next morning and noticed Anthony's car was missing, he was long gone. Panicked, the agents raced south, following the new trail. Until their GPS tracker alerted them that Anthony had once again changed his route. Perhaps he'd gotten lost or he was suspicious that he was being followed, he had managed to go north unnoticed for about 30 minutes, distancing himself from authorities. A dizzying car chase ensued. Anthony kept changing direction. As police zeroed in, their luck was running out. Every second, Anthony inched closer to the Missouri state line. If he crossed it, they'd have to involve police in another state, which would take more time and coordination. So the agents decided to act fast, instructing the Illinois State Police to make an arrest. By coincidence, Anthony pulled off on the exit right at that moment where Illinois authorities had already been stationed. Realizing that he had driven right into the hands of his captors, he sped through the exit and back onto the highway. But he didn't get far before the police surrounded him. He was trapped on the interstate. When Anthony exited the car, his breath reeked of alcohol. Officers arrested him, and on July 15th, they charged him with driving under the influence and placed him behind bars. But as he settled into his cell in Jonesboro, Illinois, he received even more disturbing news from Detectives Moise and Warner. They had a warrant for his arrest in Omaha, charging him with four counts of first-degree murder and four counts of felony weapon use. Hearing this, Anthony remained suspiciously calm, like he had during his firing from Creighton University but under the facade, anger and fear boiled. Gone were any additional opportunities to punish the doctors who stood in his way. Now it was time to answer for his mayhem. With Anthony in custody in Illinois, detectives searched his Terre Haute home. The house was relatively empty, as if he'd been preparing to move. The bare rooms made the search painless but not any less bizarre. On the dining room table, they found neat stacks of Anthony's personal documents, including his medical license and the deed to his house. For detectives, the organized piles were reminiscent of a suicide scene. Considering Anthony's battle with alcoholism and professional struggles, self-harm wasn't beyond the realm of possibility to investigators, especially considering what they found next. In the kitchen sink, detectives discovered a garbage bag filled with papers. It was soaking in an unidentifiable chemical, likely a fluid meant to dissolve the bag and its contents. Detectives were able to retrieve and read most of the documents inside. They showed a collection of Anthony's failures his termination letter from Creighton, the scathing review from Dr. Butra, and rejections from various medical licensing departments. There were even documents revealing that his house was entering foreclosure, which explained the emptiness. Alongside it, they found research on how to succeed in identity theft. It was evidence that, despite owning a Mercedes and Ferrari, Anthony's financial woes were unceasing. The most startling discovery was a collection of handwritten notes. These abstract musings disclosed the depths of Anthony's sadistic leanings. One sheet of paper included what seemed to be a step-by-step layout of a revenge plot. Invade Rich House Torture Murder Jack Rich Children Gun Invade Kill. Knife. Garage. Kidnap family. Torture. Kill. It seemed that even after the double homicides, Anthony's hunger for vengeance was unsated. With a slew of residencies and jobs he'd been fired from, there were countless potential victims on his hit list. But true horror unveiled itself when detectives Moise and Warner impounded and searched Anthony's Mercedes SUV. Inside, they found a crowbar, a sledgehammer, gloves, and a map with directions to Shreveport, Louisiana, where Anthony attempted his fourth medical residency at Louisiana State University. Detectives also found his old Louisiana State University lab coat, It was odd that Anthony had it in his car, given that he hadn't needed it, for over five years. Even odder, the car also included directions from Shreveport to New Orleans and instructions on how to rent a fishing boat in the city. These strange clues sent mental alarms off in the investigators' minds. They reasoned that Anthony was heading south to commit another act of vengeance. If he was let free, what could stop him from going through with this heinous plan? Coming up, authorities fight to prevent Anthony Garcia from taking more lives. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy.
1: Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now.
0: Now, back to the story. After the murders of Dr. Roger Brumbach and his wife Mary on May 12, 2013, the Omaha Police Department aggressively pursued their number one suspect, 39-year-old Dr. Anthony Garcia. By early 2014, detectives Derek Moise and Scott Warner had compiled their evidence in preparation for the trial. Unfortunately, the one piece of evidence Moise and Warner were eager to get their hands on, the broken gun Anthony used to shoot and beat the Brumbags, was nowhere to be found. This was something Anthony's attorneys readily built their case around his legal team was notoriously aggressive. At pretrial hearings, they erupted in unprofessional outbursts against the prosecution team. At one point, Anthony's lawyer became so irritated with the prosecuting attorney that he screamed to the judge, I'm sick of his mouth. Still, their arguments were fair. They claimed the evidence connecting Anthony to the Dundee murders were weak at best. Other than the eyewitness testimonies about Anthony's car and skin color, there wasn't much proof that he killed Tom Hunter and Shirley Sherman in 2008. The other matter was the missing gun. The weapon used to murder the Brumbacks hadn't turned up in their search of Anthony's home and cars. It would be nearly impossible to pin Anthony for the crimes without it. Knowing this... In September 2014, Detective Warner checked if any police departments between Omaha and Terre Haute had found a gun. If they had, they likely would have followed the protocol of searching the serial number in the lost and stolen arms database. Sure enough, Detective Warner's strategy proved successful. Back in July 2013, a sheriff in Illinois had been alerted to an abandoned firearm on the side of the highway. He confiscated it and ran the serial number through the database. But his search came up empty. No one had reported this gun missing. Of course, Anthony wouldn't report a missing murder weapon. So the sheriff put the gun in storage. The serial number stayed in the database until September 2014, when investigators in Omaha typed in the serial number of the gun purchased by Anthony Garcia. Stunned at their luck, Detective Moise and three colleagues drove to Illinois to retrieve the literal smoking gun. Still, they felt the jury might respond best to witness statements. So they made a point to visit the strip clubs that Anthony had frequented in Terre Haute. That's where they found 26-year-old Cecilia Hoffman, the adult entertainer to whom Anthony had confessed the Dundee murders. When the defense got wind of this development, they reportedly launched a vicious campaign to silence Cecilia. They even sent a private investigator to visit her house in June 2015. The man showed Cecilia a detective badge, giving her the impression that he was a member of the police force. By tactics of intimidation, the private investigator strategically made Cecilia question herself and back out of her original testimony. According to Cecilia, This was more of an attempt to end the interrogation. However, the investigators' efforts were ceaseless. Confused, Cecilia emailed the Omaha police investigators on her phone while the man was still at her house. She wanted to know if this stranger was part of their team. The Omaha detectives replied immediately, letting her know that whoever had come was not a member of the prosecution team she'd still need to testify. Though shaken, Cecilia proceeded with courage. On October 3rd, 2016, the trial against 43-year-old Anthony Garcia began. On the 10th day, Cecilia gave her testimony recounting Anthony's haunting confession. On cross-examination, Anthony's lawyer raised suspicions about Cecilia's reliability as a witness, insinuating that, as an exotic dancer, deception and manipulation were part of her job. The character assassination didn't end there. He brought up her conversation with their private investigator. The defense lawyer pointed to the fact that Cecilia recanted and admitted to being unsure of what she heard. The prosecution denounced these claims, telling the jury that the defense's private investigator asked leading questions to manipulate and frighten Cecilia. When Cecilia confirmed that she was, in fact, fearful of the defense's private investigator, Anthony's lawyer screamed that she couldn't possibly be afraid of him and not fear in his client, a man who confessed a murder to her. When Cecilia confirmed that she was, in fact, fearful of the defense's private investigator, Anthony's lawyer screamed that she couldn't possibly be afraid of him and not fear his client, a man who confessed a murder to her. A prosecutor made an objection. The judge shouted for the lawyer to stop. The entire scene made the jurors visibly uncomfortable. In effect, It cast more of a negative light on Anthony's attorneys than it did on Cecilia as a witness. But the case was not yet won. Dr. Chandra Butra, Dr. Bill Hunter and Detective Moyce all gave statements. In addition, the county coroner spoke to the biological similarities
1: in all four murders. Medical professionals are commonly called to the stand to offer their expert opinions. This is necessary because a jury may need help understanding the complex medical information pertinent to a legal proceeding. Doctors who testify bring a sense of objectivity and legitimacy to an argument and also help round out the narrative of a legal team's case. I've testified many times as an expert witness, and several of my colleagues have as well. Doctors are compensated for their time in court, and in fact, many regularly provide testimony for supplemental income. Some also view it as a nice change of pace from the stress of their clinical practices. Whatever the motivation, medical experts are invaluable in the courtroom and are sources of clarity in a confusing and often hostile environment.
0: On the stand, the coroner illuminated the repeated severing of the carotid artery in all four victims. It was a precise hit that only someone with medical knowledge would have used. While the consistency seemed damning, Anthony appeared disinterested throughout the 16-day trial, some days appearing to be asleep. His apathetic demeanor didn't help his case and surely didn't elicit sympathy from the jury. On October 25th, 2016, the jury began deliberations, which extended into the following day. On October 26th, 43-year-old Anthony was found guilty of four first-degree murders and four counts of using a weapon to commit a felony. Relief swelled through the courtroom as Tom Hunter's mother and another one of her sons embraced, and Shirley Sherman's family cried. Still, there was a lingering sadness. The four lives lost would never be returned. Grief sat alongside this moment of justice. Anthony's mother also cried, leaning into the shoulder of her husband as they dealt with with a different pain. Their son had amounted to far less than what they'd dreamt for him. Two years later, on September 14th, 2018, Anthony Garcia was brought to the courtroom in a wheelchair for sentencing. The freshly-shaven appearance he had throughout the trial was gone, replaced with long curly black hair and an unruly salt-and-pepper beard. Now 45 years old and without cash to pay for defense attorneys, Anthony was represented by public defenders that pushed a sentimental narrative. In their eyes, Anthony was thrust into a career he never wanted by his parents, the stress of which led to alcoholism and mental health conditions that were the true culprit of his crimes. Their attempts to thwart the inevitable failed. Anthony Garcia was sentenced to execution and transported to death row in Nebraska. As of June 2021, he is still there, awaiting the final act of his
1: sentence. One of the most important assets a physician should have is perseverance, the ability to push through difficulties without giving up or being consumed by resentment. Dr. Anthony Garcia ultimately stacked up short in this department. He must have been dealing with an incredible amount of anger, and worst of all, it was multifaceted. He probably resented his parents on some level for pushing him into a career he didn't want and felt inwardly bitter for not living up to their expectations. This inner conflict could have only inflamed his anger towards his medical education, and any person who symbolically represented it. Anthony's horrible behavior eventually left him without stable work, and in need of a focal point to pin his grievances to. Of course, in his mind, the logical targets were the perceived gatekeepers of his success and happiness. Rather than deal with his own problems and culpability, he constantly blamed others and couldn't overcome his blinding and self-fueled adversity. We unfortunately saw the consequences of this." In the end,
0: none of Anthony's vile acts got him closer to the dream his parents set out for him, nor did they free him from the emptiness of rejection. It's said success is the best revenge. But for Anthony Garcia, such redemption remains forever out of reach. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. For more information on Anthony Garcia, among the many sources we used, we found the book Pathological, the Murderous Rage of Dr. Anthony Garcia by Henry J. Cordis and Todd Cooper, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Courtney Taylor, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.
2: Hi, listeners, it's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Solved
1: Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.